Today's scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bears, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like this beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And the authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I recently saw on, I think it was like PBS, one of those antique shows where you like find something in your attic and you bring it to an expert and they tell you if it's worth any money or not. I love stopping on these shows for some reason, just every now and then. And recently I saw this poor family who brought what they thought was this priceless family heirloom, this violin, to an expert who had to tell them the bad news that it was a counterfeit of a famous craftsman. It was really hard to watch. Of course, I did watch it, but it was hard to watch. It's one thing to fake an object, uh, but what if you could fake a person? So not to get totally dystopian on you, but I don't, there's this new thing called deep fakes. And uh, Nova on PBS recently aired a special on this phenomenon. And uh, if you're not familiar, deep fakes use really powerful computer programs to study thousands and thousands of images of faces to put someone's face and their voice onto another image uh, to make that person say something they never actually said. So you can make a speech from Ronald Reagan look and sound almost exactly like Barack Obama. And you can make Barack Obama say something that's actually being said by like Jordan Peele. It's not great (laughs) that we're able to do this. Uh, But while deep fakes are a new thing, spiritual deep fakes are as old as sin. In fact, that phenomenon is as old as uh, the Garden of Eden when the serpent first came to Adam and Eve whispering, now did God really say? That's why one of the main warnings of the book of Revelation is that there are many Jesus deep fakes in the world. And they're so good. They're so compelling. They're so close in some ways, to the real thing. That if we are not constantly in tune with the real Jesus as he has presented to us in the New Testament, we can easily be duped by them. And that's the primary message of our text today from Revelation uh, chapters 12 and 13. So if you have a Bible handy, turn there now. 
These chapters describe a series of monsters. So we said Revelation would get a little weird. We're still in the weird part. There's a serpent, there's a beast, and there's a second beast. And the beasts in particular, uh, whomever or whatever they are, are not the exact opposite of Jesus. This is John's point, but a subtle and eerily similar counterfeit that look and sound a little bit like Jesus. And if we aren't careful, we can be duped by them. And so John is warning us here that our greatest threat as a church is not simply unbelief or moral failure, as dangerous as those things are. It is to be led astray by a, an almost Jesus, a fake Jesus. Because an almost Jesus is an absolute threat to us. And to avoid this, we need to see at least three things this, uh, during this service together. And the first is this. We are in a battle. John makes that really obvious in these chapters of Revelation uh, 12 and 13. In chapter 12, verse 7, John says, Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And later, in chapter 13, verse 7, uh, that, uh, the beast that comes from the dragon in chapter 12 is allowed to make war on the saints, that is, people who follow Jesus. So the imagery of battle is all over this section. And John's vision shows us that even if we can't perceive it with our senses, we are in a great battle all the time. And to communicate the nature of this battle and who is involved, John uses these powerful symbols and images as he's done throughout this whole book. And again, to read these chapters well, we need to pay attention to these images and why John is using them, what the, what the purpose is. So we're introduced to a lot of characters and images here. Let me just run through them really quick. We see here a woman in labor, a red dragon, a male child uh, born to the woman, we have Michael and his angels. We have the dragon's angels. We have the rest of the offspring of the woman. We have a beast rising out of the sea and a beast rising out of the earth. That's a lot. <laughs> so let's just slow down here a minute and, and make sense of this. So there are basically three categories of characters here on this list. First, you've got the divine. So in particular, the child born of the woman uh, is Jesus. That's the conclusion we're supposed to draw. The slain lamb, the king of kings and lord of lords. That's who that character is. Then there's, so there's a, a divine category. Then there's like a human category. So the woman represents the people of God throughout history from whom Messiah comes. She and her offspring are aligned with the lamb. This is now the church. And the, but the last category is the strangest one for us, I think. There, in this category, basically, is that there are intelligent spiritual beings known as angels and demons who are constantly at work in these chapters and throughout the book and in our present reality. So here we've got the dragon or serpent, the devil. He's, he's called both. We've got Michael and his, his uh, angels. We've got the dragon's angels. And then we have beasts from the sea uh, and from the land. So let's take a minute here. Because, because of the materialist bias of our culture, we can easily fall prey to what Paul Hebert calls the flaw of the excluded middle. Now, Hebert was a missionary to India, 
when he wrote about this category this, uh, in particular. And he was reflecting on some of the early ineffectiveness of his missionary work uh, in that culture. And he wrote these words. He said, I had excluded the middle level of supernatural, but this worldly beings and forces from my worldview. For me, the middle zone didn't really exist. Unlike the Indian villagers I was working with, I had given little thought to spirits of this world, to local ancestors or ghosts, to the souls of animals, right? Questions that they were asking. For me, these belonged to the realm of fairies and trolls and other mythical beings. Now, depending on your spiritual background, this category may be one of the biggest struggles you have with the Christian faith. And I understand that, right? Our culture makes angels and demons seem really, really implausible and that supernatural forces at work in our world is kind of scary or intimidating. But there are also those, and maybe this is your background, who are increasingly drawn to the world of crystals or Wiccan or neo-paganism and the reality of spiritual forces in our world. For the Christian, the issue is not that such forces and creatures don't exist. That's not true. But rather, what is our relationship to them supposed to be? And uh, you have to forgive me, but I've got to quote C.S. Lewis here. I know I do that a lot. But uh, he points out in the screw tape letters, I think this is in the introduction, uh, he says he, he has a dual warning for us. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So we have to take these beings seriously. We are in a battle, and the players in that battle are more than mere flesh and blood. And John is adamant that we see that, that the battle we find ourselves in is with the same serpent who deceived our ancestors, Adam and Eve, all the way back in the beginning. And he uses our sin, other people's sin, world events, and yes, demons, to distract us, to divide us, and to defeat us if we allow him to do that. John is peeling back the curtain of reality to show us that our battle is fundamentally against principalities and powers from of old. And hey, if you have more questions about this, because I can't possibly cover all of this, tune in on Monday nights on Facebook to Nothing Else Is On uh, at 8 p.m. We post it on Facebook. I believe we're going to post it on our website as well. You can text in questions live to campus pastors uh, who are present there, and they'll talk about those questions. The Chiefs game on Monday night is going to be over, uh, so you have no excuse. But when we forget uh, the truly spiritual nature of our reality, we've already conceded too much ground to the enemy, and we've put ourselves at great risk of being duped by an almost Jesus. So we have to take this battle seriously. Because as the Apostle Paul points out in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the enemy often disguises himself as an angel of light. This is a part of his strategy, which leads to our second insight from this, uh, these chapters, which is that our enemy is disguised. So we're in a great battle, and our enemy is often disguised. The enemy comes disguised as an almost Jesus, so close, an almost Christ who's actually an antichrist. And these two chapters are a word of warning to the Christian community to be on guard against the deceptive power of our enemy, against his uh, deep fakes that he puts into the world. And you see that most clearly in chapter 13, starting in verse 1. 
So just listen to this again. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And then you have this description of the second beast. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now, I know that was really weird. And maybe you're listening and you're thinking, phew, I would never confuse those creepy beasts for the real Jesus. So problem solved. I got this nailed. But that is the point of the symbolic nature of Revelation. Okay, follow me here. This is how apocalyptic imagery works. These images are uncovering what is really there that we would otherwise miss. So a great example of this is uh, in this painting. It's called The Temptation of St. Anthony. You'll notice St. Anthony here is is prominent. And there's a beautiful woman, well-dressed, who seems to be offering him a gift. But just underneath the surface are monsters. So if you look closely at her foot, you see something is off. You see that claw? It's scary, right? What John is doing is, in these chapters is pulling off the veneer of what tempts us to abandon Jesus to reveal the truth. That underneath the glittering allure of, of the idols of power or consumerism or comfort or sex or money or ego, is a monster waiting for us. Listen to these words from Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before our God. So John is turning up the symbolism so that we see what we would otherwise miss, this great deceiver, the beast who presents as an almost Jesus, He's pretending to be Jesus, but better. And you'll notice that in the very subtle ways, John compares and contrasts the beast and the slain lamb of the earlier chapters. So like Jesus, he had a mortal wound that was healed. It's as if he has power over death and healing, just like Jesus. But instead, notice of being a weak slain lamb who calls you to suffering, this is a powerful beast. He's a behemoth who can conquer. He's unbeatable with multiple crowns on multiple heads, and he draws people into worship. And the beast from the sea even pretends to look like a lamb. You notice John describes him as horns like a lamb and is able to perform signs and miracles just like Jesus and the prophets did. He's drawing from the Old Testament imagery and saying, there's a counterfeit being presented to you. That's verses 12 and 13 of chapter 13. 
but its blasphemous words and violent actions reveal to those who pay attention that this is a deep fake. And the deception continues all the way down to the end of the chapter, where you get the mark of the beast and the number 666. Now, I get a lot of questions about this stuff, so I want to take just a minute here. Remember with me that numbers in the book of Revelation have highly symbolic uh, functions. So, for example, the number seven is all over the book of Revelation. Seven, if you remember, is the model of the creation week back in Genesis 1. It's a very important number. It's often the number for completeness or fullness and goodness. And the number three is God's number, uh, the triune God. So, three sevens, for example, would be complete goodness and fullness and perfection in the logic of Revelation. Then so three, if three sevens is really, really good, then three sixes would be almost good, but actually bad. See, that's part of the function of that number. However, nearly all common, uh, commentators who, who study this book really, really closely also point out that the number 666 should be understood also in light of, a, of an ancient literary convention called gematria. Maybe you've heard of this before, uh, where numbers stand for letters. So in English, that would mean that A has a a value of 1, B has a value of 2, and on and on that would go. So John has likely put a cipher here, a number that stands for a real name. But there's a lot of debate about whose name that is and how to interpret that. Uh, Who is the beast and, and, and whose number is 666? Now, many scholars believe that it stands uh, at least for one person, namely Nero Caesar, who was a violent persecutor of the church in Rome, whose name in Hebrew adds up to 666. But even if that's true, and I'm not sure that it is, the larger point here is the loyalty that all beasts demand who set themselves up against God. And there are many such beasts. And you see this really in the mark. So the mark of the beast is another parody. It's another deep fake. Remember earlier in Revelation, the Lamb seals his followers with his name on their foreheads. Do you remember that? And this is all a reference to Deuteronomy, where God tells his people to write his words on their foreheads and to bind them to their hands, not literally, but as a picture of their absolute love and devotion to him. The beast wants the same loyalty God demands. Paul Spilberry is helpful here. He wrote this, In the same way the mark of the beast is a sign of loyalty and belonging, not to God, but to the beast. And just as we should not interpret the seal of God as something visible to the naked eye, so we should not think of the mark of the beast as something that can be seen, or indeed even as a physical reality. It is a spiritual mark, an attitude, a mindset that shows compliance with the agenda and the methods of the beast. So I don't think John is warning us here about barcodes and Apple Pay, but he is warning us to look carefully at what our purchases and spending reveal about where our loyalties and loves truly lie. We're supposed to be wise and discerning and understanding. This is how we withstand being duped by deep fakes, which brings us to the third insight from these chapters, which is this, we endure by unmasking the almosts, unmasking the almosts. The whole point of all this is that followers of the Lamb would endure 
and that they would not be drawn in by the almost Jesuses, even if that means suffering and persecution. So listen to chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. So here John kind of interrupts the vision and speaks directly to the reader. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Here John is reminding us to endure here means to accept our fate that faithfulness brings into our lives. And part of the way that we patiently endure in faithfulness is learning to spot and unmask or the almost Jesuses, or the Jesuses plus something else tempt us and beckon us to worship them instead of him. And these almost Jesuses, those places of temptation that Satan uses to deceive us will not look like beasts and dragons. Right? Our enemy is way too subtle for that. He comes disguised as an angel of light. So think carefully. This is John's warning. Let he who has ears let him hear. Here are a few examples, maybe in your own life, to consider. Does our view of Jesus cause us to discount large portions of Scripture? Do we find ourselves saying things like, well, Jesus would never say that? Even though, you know, the Bible he constantly quotes and loves does actually say that. Do we functionally overvalue the importance of our political leaders to the point where we think only the right person or party can save us or save our country? Kind of a, yeah, Jesus, you're really, really great, but we need someone with actual power to get things done. Does our view of Jesus leave us nearly faultless and our opponents irredeemable? Does Jesus' teaching and example challenge us at all? Or do we only see the parts we like and ignore the parts that we don't? Or does our view of Jesus look a lot like us such that if we took Jesus out of the equation of our lives, if we no longer believed in him or thought he was real, would our lives change at all? Are our real goals things like getting just a little bit bigger home, a little bit nicer car, a little bit longer vacation, being a little bit smarter, having a little bit more obedient children, having a little thinner, fitter body, a little bit more secure retirement? Then everything would be great. All of my needs would be met. And if you just sprinkle a little Jesus on top of that, that would be perfect. Now listen, I battle all of those things, but I have to remember that these are a deep fake. And just underneath is a monster, a monster, by the way, who doesn't care fundamentally what I do or what I believe or what I say I believe as long as my real devotion and worship is directed anywhere but to the Lamb. Remember, the Pharisees in the Gospels were brilliant biblical scholars and most closely aligned with Jesus theologically, but they hated Jesus himself, and Satan delighted in that. Jesus' deep fakes abound, but the real Jesus, the Lamb, has defeated all of them. That is the promise of Revelation. And if you're with him, your name is inscribed in his book of life. So yes, we're in a battle. And yes, the serpent accuses day and night before God, accuses us, but we have an advocate with the Father. And we can sing with all our hearts this lovely hymn, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. 
with our brothers and sisters. We can fix our eyes on him and endure and take hope that the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point even of death. So keep calling one another back to the truth, to the blood of the lamb, the real Jesus.